Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Again, thank you, Ms., for reading the scripture this morning. At City on a Hill, we put a very high value on God's word. Uh, and so we, uh, we, when we get to the end, we say, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, as we submit ourselves to it, we're saying we believe that God's word is good for us, it's authoritative, and it gives us everything we need to, uh, to grow in life and godliness. Whoever preached last week was like five foot three, sorry. Um, um, just kidding, he's taller than that. Um, uh, <laughs> But again, my name's Stephen. If, if I missed you at the beginning, uh, I'm the lead pastor here at City on a Hill. I want to welcome you. Again, if you are a guest, we'd love to get to know you. Uh, you can fill out that blue connection card in your seat, drop it in the back. Uh, and to incentivize that, just to, uh, as a thank you to visiting for visiting today, we will send you a $5 gift card to Ula Cafe, which is a coffee shop here in uh, in a, in a Jamaica Plain, just as a way to say thank you for visiting, as well as make a $5 donation from a list of charities we will send to you via email. So be sure to do that, and we'll follow up with some information about City on a Hill. Our values as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. The gospel, it means good news. Uh, literally, that uh, we have good news that we were once separated from God because of our sin, uh, because of our sinful choices, uh, that none of us can live up to God's standard. There are no perfect people in this church. There's only one perfect person we look to, and that's Jesus. God sent his very own son, to die for us in our place to, and then raising again, giving us new life so that anyone who trusts in Jesus can be saved. So if you've not entered into that relationship today, I'd love to share with you how to do that uh, after the service. Secondly, community. God created us for relationships. He created us to grow best in relationships with each other. And we do that through community groups. Groups meet throughout the week uh, to share life together, study God's word and love and serve our neighbors. So if you've not connected to one of those, let us know. Uh, take that next step card, a yellow kind of mustard color card in your seat and uh, drop it in the box in the back uh, as well. And then lastly, mission. Mission is the, uh, the idea that good news should be told to other people. We have the best news in the world, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, which we are going to celebrate next next Sunday. So we tell that good news. We also live lives shaped by that good news. Because of the way that Jesus has loved and served us, we love and serve our friends and neighbors. A few announcements before we jump into the text today. Coming up this week, this is Holy Week. We started today with Palm Sunday, but coming up on Friday is Good Friday. We are going to celebrate and remember the death of Jesus Christ. So 6.30 on Good Friday, we are going to be here. So be sure to come. Good Friday, 6.30, there is childcare that evening. Um, we'll have a very short service with the rest of our City and the Hill congregations from around Boston. So this is gonna be a really, really amazing service. So if you've never been a part of a Good Friday service, it's very unique as we remember the death of Jesus with a hope looking toward Easter Sunday. Uh, coming up next Saturday, we're gonna be having an Easter egg hunt over at Green, over by Green Street at Johnston Park. Um, we need, if you have kids, number one, come. Number two, we need help. So we, uh, we put, a sign, we sign, put a thing out, put an event out online. Um, we had to shut down signups because we have 217 kids signed up to come to this Easter egg hunt. So 
we need you. So um, be sure to uh, to find me. Uh, Heather, our, our kids director, is home with a, with a sick kid today. So find me, find Matt. Uh, we love to help get you uh, plugged into that because we need you. Um, and then coming up next Sunday, we are going to celebrate Easter, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And so uh, when you think about Easter, um, it's a day, it's a day of, of the resurrection. It's a day of new life. And so we're going to celebrate that day. We're going to have refreshments uh, that morning. Also, I want you to come early. We're going to have a photo booth. So we're going to do free uh, photos for families and friends by a professional photographer. So be sure to come, but also invite somebody. You have no idea the power of inviting somebody. So you'll find some Easter invite cards in your seat. I just want to challenge you to invite at least one person this week to Easter. And just to give you a personal story on why this matters, when I was in ninth grade, I came to church because a friend invited me. A friend invited me to go to church. I came and God radically changed my life. You have no clue the impact you can make by just making an invitation to somebody. So I invite you to do that and come be a part of an incredible, incredible Sunday. All right, let's jump in today. Uh, we are continuing our, ser- our, our sermon series called The Road to Redemption. We began this last week. My friend Aaron Peters, who's the pastor at City on a Hill in Brighton, was able to uh, teach us the beginning of this. But we're looking at um, how the gospels show us how Jesus's life, death, and resurrection lead to the forgiveness of sins. That this is the only road that leads to restoration with God, the only way that God can redeem us for himself. And Aaron last week showed us how this road begins with an invitation. It begins with an invitation from Jesus to us. And as Jesus invites us, we see the very character of Jesus. We see the gentleness and the lowliness of Jesus. His very heart is drawn towards sinful people like you and I. And so today we're going to walk through a longer passage of scripture, a little bit longer than usual. Uh, And also I want to give some some needed background to help us see where this road begins with Jesus coming as king. And so I'm going to walk through the text and then I'm going to give some implications and observations at the end. But we're going to be today in Luke chapter 19. We're going to be really discussing verses 28 through 48, even though I had Ms. read just a few verses. I'm going to be unpacking this, but to kind of give you the idea of the book of Luke, Luke was written as a letter, as a, as a story to his friend Theophilus. His friend Theophilus was someone who wanted to believe in Jesus, was interested in, in the gospel, interested in Christianity. And so he wrote this as an apologetic or a defense of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So if you break the book of Luke down, Tim Keller says you can really break it into three acts. And each act has its kind of own controlling question. So the first act of Luke is chapters one through nine. It deals with the mind. The question is, who is Jesus? That's the fundamental question you have to answer is, who is Jesus? Because determining who Jesus is determines everything else. The next nine chapters, verses 10 through 18, deal with the will. The will, And the controlling question is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? So if Jesus is who he says he is as the son of God, he demands that we follow him. What does that mean? What does that look like? What's the call to you and I? And then the last act, which we're going to focus on a portion of today and then really carry through to Easter next Sunday and on Good Friday is the heart. So we know who Jesus is. We know what it means to follow him. But what does that really entail? The question for us that's being asked at the end of the book of Luke is, will you embrace Jesus? Will you take Jesus as he is, as he calls you to himself? And the entire book of Luke has been leading up to this point here in the middle of Luke chapter 19. It's been leading us to Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. Verse 28, it says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Jesus enters into Jerusalem. His entire life has been leading him to this place. The Bible says that Jesus is a man of sorrows. 
Jesus lived a life mingled with joy and sorrow, knowing that one day he would be led to this point, led to Jerusalem, led to be crowned as a king, led to a cross to die for our sins. And this is the beginning of that path towards the cross. His whole life has been leaning here, God becoming man, becoming the king that we truly need, becoming the only way possible to come to God. Now, religious pluralism would say that there is not only one way, that there are multiple ways to get to God. So it doesn't matter if it's Buddhism or if it's Islam, if it's eight or five laws or whatever it might be, or just be a good person or, or give enough money or be philanthropic or be kind to animals, all these different ways that lead to a good life. But the problem is, is that this road is so treacherous, it's so hard that there is only one way to get there, no matter how hard you try. Last Sunday, I missed all of you very dearly. I was out of town. Um, I was down in Fort Myers, I know, poor me. Uh, and so I got to go to Florida, Southwest Florida in the middle of uh, March. And so I go down there every year because I serve as the uh, chapel leader for the Red Sox. And so this is a, a really fun thing that I get to do. And uh, so I go down and I have to go for spring training once a year. And I'm planning on leaving on Sunday night. I'm gonna leave out Sunday night. I'm gonna be back, be ready to go Monday morning. And I get this notification from JetBlue about 9.45 in the morning that says your flight's been canceled. I'm like, no big deal. I'm sure I'm just gonna be on the next flight. Well, then I look at my email a little more closely and they said, your flight has been rescheduled for Tuesday night at 5.41. And I'm like, oh no, no, this is not acceptable. And so I call JetBlue and I'm on the phone for four hours. I called them. I actually walked around the outlet mall in Fort Myers with my headphones and listening to, you know, like music, elevator music. And every time I thought someone was going to answer, I'd like put my, you know, my bag down and start to let no, it was four hours. I'm on the phone. They finally answered the phone to tell me that there's no way they could possibly get me back to Boston faster than Tuesday night. They said, well, you're welcome to just we'll cancel it, we'll refund you your money. Um, but then I went to look at tickets and they were somewhere between $1,200 and $2,500 for a one-way ticket from Southwest Florida to Boston with a 12-hour layover that would get me back at about the same time. So not gonna happen. So I'm stuck in Florida for two extra days. There was nothing I could possibly do to get where I wanted to go. And much like that trip, when we look at the path that we have been called to walk to get to God, it is way too expensive for any of us to fulfill. We cannot live a good enough life to walk this road. No matter how much we try, our efforts are frustrated because we will never be able to live up to God's good and holy standard. And we realize no matter how hard we try, there is only one way, that there's only one who could walk that road and that is Jesus. Because we can't walk that road. See, Christianity is not giving us a path that says, here's this really arduous path, this really hard path full of real, these difficult rules and expectations and efforts in order to get to God. And if you just try hard enough, if you just give enough money, if you're just kind enough, if you're just a good enough person, you can finally get in there. Christianity does not make that promise. It makes the promise we looked at last week. What did Jesus say? Come to me who? You who are weary and heavy laden. Not come to me, those of you who are strong and crushing it. Not, not, not you who come to me who got everything right and read and memorized enough scripture and did all the right things. Come to me, those of you who are exhausted, who are weary from trying to be good enough, who are weary and tired from trying to be smart enough and working hard enough and being enough. Come to me, you who are heavy laden with guilt. Come to me, those who have the, are bearing the weight of shame and of fear and anxiety. This is the opposite messaging of the world. 
The world says hustle and grind and work hard and you'll eventually get there. But what does the gospel say? It says, come to me, you who are weak, and I will make you strong. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is an incredible promise, isn't it? Come to me. Now, it's only a good promise if Jesus can back that up. It's only good if he can back it up. Because honestly, if Jesus can't back those words up, if he has really no power to fulfill those words, then his claims are pretty toothless. He's just another guy. You know, if you were to come to me and say, Stephen, you know, I am just drowning in student debt. Anybody say, all the students say, amen. Um, I'm drowning in student debt. I'm about to default on my student debt. It would do you no good if I said, come to me, you who are debt ridden, and I will give you rest if I can't do anything about it, right? That's kind of, that's kind of aimless. That's, that, that, there's no power behind that. Don't worry. It's like that episode of Scott's Tots. Anybody ever watched The Office where, uh, where like I make a promise that I can't fulfill? I don't have the power or the ability to do anything to relieve you of this debt. And this is why Jesus cannot simply be a good teacher. This is why Jesus cannot simply be a good example of the best life you could possibly live. And he's the example to which you're supposed to live up to. He has to be powerful enough to walk the road that we can't. And the only one who can walk this road is someone who is a king. It takes a king It takes the only one who is good enough and powerful enough to do it. And we see this in the type of king that Jesus is. Look at verse 29. It says, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany uh, at the mount, which is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. And so we look at this passage here. We see Jesus drawing unto Jerusalem. He's a few miles east of Jerusalem. He's making the annual trip uh, for Passover. So if you're not familiar with Passover in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, God's people, Israel, the Hebrews had been in captivity in Egypt and God delivered them from this captivity through, uh, through um, uh, sending the angel of death. And he said that if you'll just paint the blood of an innocent lamb over the doorway, I will overlook or pass over your house as this is a payment for sin. And so the people of Israel celebrating this would celebrate this every year by coming to, uh, to Jerusalem for the Passover, making a sacrifice as a symbol of what God had done. And so Jesus and others are doing the same thing. He's drawing them to Bethany and Bethage. And, and if you look at the way he says this, it's kind of like he's, uh, Luke is describing this for somebody who doesn't know the geography. So if you were describing to someone, maybe you grew up uh, here in Boston and you, or grew up, maybe you grew up in Lemonster. Maybe you grew up there and, and no one in, outside of Boston knows where Lemonster, much less can spell Lemonster and wonders why you say it as Lemonster. Um, you would not say I'm from Lemonster. You would say I'm from Boston. And if they press a little further, you'd say, oh, I'm from Lemonster. You'd say I'm a little, from a little further out. That's kind of what Luke is saying to give Theophilus an idea. He's saying, you know, might know where Bethany is. Bethsage is near Bethany. And so they come through this, they're coming through Bethage, they draw up into the Mount of Olives. Now the Mount of Olives, to give you a little context, is a really special place. It's, it's the place in the Old Testament where David fled from Saul to, to hide away from him. Jesus would draw there to pray often. The Sermon on the Mount, which we covered last uh, two falls ago, um, was, uh, was taught on the Mount of Olives. All these prophecies in the Bible happened uh, at, the, uh, at the Mount of Olives. This is a place of victory. And so Jesus is going from there. He's gonna go down into the valley, go eastern uh, from the eastern from the valley, and he's gonna end up going through the temple gate. 
And so as he's on the journey, something unique happens. Again, we see in verse 29 that he sends his disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, if you were to hear this, so let's say you're one of Jesus's disciples, you're following him and you're wondering, why is Jesus wanting me to commit grand theft auto? Because if you imagine this today, it'd be like, hey, go over there and steal that dude's Honda Civic. That's what it sounds like. They're, they're thinking, thinking, this seems a little nutty. I mean, I guess we're just gonna roll up and say, hey, we need that. We need to commandeer this like a cop movie. We're taking your, your vehicle. How did Jesus know it was gonna be there? How did he know that the owners were gonna agree? There's really two options to make sure that this was not something illegal. It could have been prearranged. It could have been that Jesus knew these people and said, hey, on this date, I'm coming to do this thing, just be ready. But I don't think it's that because we notice that the people ask a question. They say, hey, wait, wait, what are you doing? This actually shows us the sovereignty of God at work, that God is in control of all things. And Jesus, as God, the son is showing he is not a normal man or a normal king, but he is the very son of God who has organized and arranged this for his arrival. And we see this more as the disciples go. This all gets confirmed. Verse 32, so that those who were sent away, uh, uh, so, so those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, his owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Just as they were told. It was, he was confirming everything that he had told them. He continues to show them that he is not a normal king. He's a sovereign king who's in control of all things. And those who are watching and experiencing this are noticing that there's something really unique about Jesus. That he's the, what the Old Testament called the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the king that would come after David's line. Second Samuel 7 says, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. If you, if you know the Old Testament, you know the, the books of first and second Samuel, we see David is the king who is to be the king after God's own heart. The one who is to be the paradigm for the way any other king should be. And God makes this promise, this covenant with David and says, there will be one who comes through your line, one of your descendants who will reign on the throne forever and be the type of king that the world needs to make everything right. And so initially David is imagining that God's talking about his son, Solomon. Well, as we see the failures of David and the failures of Solomon, we begin to see, and the people of Israel begin to see that God wasn't talking about Solomon. He's talking about someone coming in the future. And so all this, this hope and this hype began to center around this Messiah who would come one day, this, this king who would come after David from David's line and make everything right and restore Israel to its rightful place in the world as a light to the rest of the world. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, God told Abraham that he, through his family, would be a blessing to all nations. And the cult that we see here is one of over of hundreds of prophecies that lead to the, this being fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The verse we read as a confession earlier, Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you and righteous, uh, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal of a donkey." Jesus coming in, in humility and grace. 
This donkey that had never been ridden, important because royal, a royal animal could not be used for common use. And so here's Jesus saying, I'm the king. I'm the one. I'm that guy. And what can a king do? A king can make demands. A king can say, I need that. And that's where Jesus says when he sends his disciples, tell them the Lord has need of it. In fact, in the original language, the sense of that is the Lord is actually the owner of that, their true owner, in such a way that God is the owner of all things. And he can do that because he is sovereign and can do as he pleases. We don't like that in America, right? We fought an entire war over that. We didn't want a king. We're people who don't want a king. In fact, Tim Keller talked about a friend uh, who was a British minister who came to the United States in the 70s. And this guy was gonna minister in the United States, but just like any good missionary, he wanted to understand his context. He wanted to understand what made Americans tick. And so he goes to Philadelphia, the center of you know, American freedom. He goes and he looks at the Liberty Bell. Um, he goes and he goes to this tiny little town and he finds a placard that says, we serve no sovereign here. That's America right? We believe we don't serve anyone or anything. We, it's all up to us. It's all about me and it's what I want. No one can tell me what to do. But the reality is, is that all of us are looking to someone or something to revere, honor, or give our attention. We do this with athletes and celebrities and influencers and politicians and trends and thought leaders And the longing to have someone be the one that we look to isn't wrong because we were designed to give our whole hearts to someone. Keller says of this, he says, it's a memory trace of a perfect king, of an ultimate king, of a king of glorious splendor, undimmed before the breaking of the world, whose wisdom and nobility and love and compassion and greatness and beauty was like the sun shining in its full strength. We remember a king like that. The reason that we do this and we look to someone or something to give sense and order to our lives is we were designed to do it. We all give our love and our whole selves to something. But the reality is is that the other things outside of Jesus we look to to be our functional kings cannot bear the weight. What did Jesus say? He said, come to me. He said, give me your burdens because I can bear them. Anyone or anything that we attempt to make the king of our lives to satisfy our souls will ultimately falter and fail. And we need a king who is strong enough to handle it. And that requires a king who is sovereign and in control of all things. But if God is going to be in control of all things, if he's big enough to handle everything in our lives, we don't get to pick and choose when he is. It means that Jesus gets a say in everything. And we see this in how the people react. We see the disciples who went, the ones who were to go. We see others who sacrificed, verses 35 and 36. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as they rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. We see people making great sacrifice, some as a saddle. They were taking the very thing that would keep them warm at night, using it as a saddle for Jesus, while others laid a path for the king. If, this, if Jesus is the sovereign king, the only proper response is that he gets everything. He gets everything. And God being in control of all things and getting say in all things is only bad if Jesus is not good. But if Jesus is truly good, giving him everything means that there could be no greater joy we could find. There's no greater hope that anything we give to God is worth it. 
We see the people starting to get excited. Look at verse 37. Verse 37 says, as he, saw, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They begin to praise all these people remembering all the promises that they learned in Sunday school all the stories that they had read, all the things that they remembered, they were hearing of this day and it's finally here. They had seen the, the ministry of Jesus. They suspected that something was up with him. Something was different. They'd seen all the miracles that he had done that were supposed to accompany the Messiah and they begin to rejoice. And this is an interesting scene because you notice there is a crowd around Jesus going toward the Passover. And when they would go toward the Passover, there would be a giant caravan, this amazing caravan of people. And they would be singing songs to one another, actually back and forth, chanting to each other. So if you've ever seen a soccer match on TV, not an American soccer match, but like a British soccer match or one in Italy or Spain or, or, or Central or South America, they just chant and sing the entire game. Sometimes I wonder if they're even watching the game. They're just chanting and singing to one another. They're rejoicing in what they're experiencing. And what we see is a similar experience to that. They would sing these psalms to one another, these special psalms at the very end of the book of Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent as they were going towards the, the temple. They would sing these songs. These songs were often described as songs for people on the way, people on a journey, they were hoping in the coming Messiah. They were singing about a Messiah to come for hundreds and hundreds of years. And here all of a sudden these people are walking along and they're seeing the, the fruition of their hope sitting right there on a donkey. And they sing these songs of hope that uh, finally found their fulfillment in Jesus. The only right and proper response to seeing Jesus, seeing the Messiah, seeing the one who fulfills every desire of your hearts is to burst out into praise because he is the fulfillment of every longing, the mender of everything broken, the restorer of everything that is lost. And when you realize that Jesus is that type of king, the only one that you'll ever need, the only one who can make everything right, you cling to him because losing him would mean that there is no hope. Rebecca McLaughlin says that if Jesus is the bread of life, loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, loss of Jesus means wandering alone and lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, loss of Jesus is eternal death. If Jesus is the lamb of God, sacrifice for our sins, loss of Jesus means paying that price for ourselves. And so since Jesus is the only one worthy of that type of worship, worship is deflecting trust and affection away from ourselves or away from anything else we would attempt to make our king to Jesus alone. But some miss this. There's always somebody who wants to be a party pooper. And it's usually the Pharisees if you read enough of the gospels. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples, turn down your music, right? Be quiet, don't, don't praise in this way. The Pharisees, they fear an uprising occurring and the Roman people getting upset. They, they're afraid of blasphemy and they see Jesus being worshiped. But Jesus says, I'm gonna be worshiped regardless. Verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. 
that all of creation is longing and aching to tell of the glory of God. Jesus is our good and sovereign King, the anointed one. And this means three things for us. There's three observations as we wrap up. The first we see is the type of King Jesus is. Jesus is a King who weeps. Isn't that interesting? When you imagine a king, you ever see those old paintings of kings? They're always on a horse, right? I don't know why they're always, always, because there's something royal about that. They always have their their chest bowed out. They have this rosy look on their face. They look like a powerful person. What's the first image we get of Jesus as he crests the mountain looking over his kingdom? Weeping. He draws near to Jerusalem, the city he loves, It comes into view and he just breaks down. There are three times in the Bible we see Jesus crying. One is the death of his friend Lazarus as he saw the mourning that was occurring for those who were left behind. We see it here and we see Hebrews 5 describing Jesus weeping before the Father as he considered what it would look like to go to the cross. We have a God who weeps. We have a Jesus who who cries and weeps for us and expresses emotion. And so there are legitimate reasons to cry. It is fully human to cry. It is manly to cry. It is kingly to cry. And the Bible allows for way more emotions than we do here in Boston. People in Boston are often called the frozen chosen, not just because it's cold outside, we're just not very emotional. It's okay to be emotional. Jesus said we could, Jesus demonstrated it. And he cries over the city of Jerusalem. Why does he cry? We see in verse 42, saying, what would that you, even you had known on this day, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Jesus knows their future. He knows of a day coming about 37 years later when their city would be under siege by the nation or by the Roman Empire in AD 70. My math might be a little off. Don't, don't fault me for that. Um, Josephus, 27 years later, sorry. No, I'm going to quit doing, trying to do math. Um, Josephus, who was the, uh, the, Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew philosopher and historian, talked about a day of, uh, where they were surrounding the city. And, and Jerusalem, in an act of defiance, burns down the wooden fence that Rome had put up and they build a stone wall that we see here. And they didn't just impose sanctions, they raised the whole thing to the ground, verse 34, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. He was talking about a future day of destruction and judgment. And he says the reason, going back to verse 42, is that they missed it. They missed their opportunity, not individuals within it, but the covenant people of Israel, the the, the leaders of Israel had missed it. They failed to see Jesus for who he really was. He says, if you only knew the peace that I could bring, And it says at the end of verse 44, because you did not know the time of your visitation, you did not know and embrace and experience the coming of the Messiah. To know here is not just knowledge about. It's not saying that they they just were, were caught unaware. They knew, they saw Jesus, they experienced Jesus, but this is intimately knowing. This is like someone saying, I'm gonna give you a free vacation to go to Acadia for an entire week. I'm gonna pay for everything. You know how to get there. I'm gonna pay for everything you can't say you know it or you've experienced it unless you go. 
And in the same way, to not go when given that chance is a refusal and a rejection of the knowledge you've been afforded. In the very same way, Israel rejected Jesus as king and they refused to trust him in such a way that God said, you are no longer going to be the light of the world. But I want you to notice Jesus' reaction. He doesn't say, forget you guys. He doesn't just like throw a lightning bolt through their chest right in that moment. He weeps. And through tear-filled eyes, Jesus sees what we cannot see. And his very heart is drawn towards what is broken. He's drawn toward the need. Rebecca McLaughlin again says, Jesus knows the end of the story. When we will, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, but this does not stop him from cleaving to us in our pain. In fact, pain is a place of special intimacy with him. We can laugh with anyone, but we cry with those closest to us. And the bond is strongest when their suffering connects with ours. The very thing that drew Jesus to Jerusalem was his brokenness and his neediness. This is what drew him to the cross, which we're gonna talk about on Good Friday. He sees us as lost and broken and he comes to us with two questions for us to consider. Do you see your own sinfulness? Do you, do you see your own brokenness? Do you see your own need for Jesus? His compassion took him to the cross for you. And then secondly, do you see the brokenness of our own city? Do you see Boston like Jesus sees Boston? When we think about a city, it's been said that there's more image of God per square mile in a city than anywhere else. And this also means that you see the best of a city. We see its beauty and its creativity and, and its ingenuity. But also we see the worst of our city. We see the worst of humanity. It's right in our face. And our tendency when we see this is to either flee from it or become it. We either run away from the brokenness or we become it. And the call for us as God's people is to be broken people going to broken people, trusting in Jesus who walked that road for us. The second observation, Jesus demands that he is the center of our lives. Jesus weeping doesn't mean he's weak. He's a God of conviction. And he's saying, I cannot leave it like this. Jesus, the first thing he does is make a beeline for the temple, verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. If you look at some other accounts, Jesus is flipping tables and making a whip. So he is getting serious. He enters in, he sees all these things that are dishonoring God. He sees all these ways in which uh, people can no longer come and sit before God and confess their sins and find forgiveness because God was no longer central. And there's a few ways that we see this happening. In Mark's account of this, people were actually using the temple as a shortcut. Can you imagine like someone walking through the back door right now, walking down the center aisle out the front door to get to Forest Hill Station? That's, people were doing that. Uh, people were, uh, sellers were going into the temple and exchanging coins. There was a special coin you had to use at the temple. And what they began to do is assist, a system of injustice was actually to use a surcharge on that money in order to, in order to, to defraud people. People would sell animals right there in, the, in, the, in that court so that people could make sacrifices. But actually one aspect of it that was so egregious was where they were doing it. There was one place in the temple where those who were not Jewish could go, and it was the outer, to outer court, the temple, the court of the Gentiles. The people had turned that into a market, forcing those who were ethnically different outside of God's presence. Jesus sees this place of greed and injustice and prejudice, and he says, I'm going to make this new. 
And the reality of these all is that God was no longer at the center of it. There are so many ways that we push Jesus to the edges of our lives. So many ways where we push him to the margins. One way we do this is through our priorities. A great question for us to ask whether Jesus is the center of our lives or not is what drops when you get busy? What drops when you get stressed? What drops when things get tough? It's our pursuits. God, I want you, but only if I can bend you around everything else in my life. So if, if, if you don't really fit in my career, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of shade that around this. If you don't fit around my relationships, I'm gonna kind of push you to the side. But also what we take pleasure in. God, I, I want to obey you, but not if it means I have to sacrifice for you or for the sake of others. God wants to restore and redeem that place as a place for prayer to him. He wants to heal it but you're only gonna get healing in your life when Jesus is allowed to put everything in its proper place. You have to fully abandon yourself to Jesus and make him the center. For it to be called a house of prayer again was to put God at the center. And then lastly, Jesus has to be the king of your whole life to experience freedom. Verses 47 and 48. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Don't you notice that as Jesus drives everything out, all the greed, all the false worship, all the injustice, what does he do? He sets up shop. Scholars believe he actually went in there every single day up into the day of his crucifixion, teaching people, calling them to himself. And there are only one of two responses to Jesus. It's reject him or embrace him. There's no middle ground. The Pharisees, they stopped listening and they rejected him. And the people, they were hanging on every word. Jesus and his life and the fact that he is a king means you have to embrace him or reject him. He demands a response. He's saying, I'm the king. I'm the one that you have been waiting for. I'm here. You can have me, but you have to have me as your king. You have to give me everything. So how do you know if Jesus is your king? It's because he has your heart. Questions you can ask yourself to determine that is, is Jesus what I want the most? Is he what you love the most? Because what you love the most is what you'll worship and give your time to, give your attention to, and what you'll sacrifice for. Do you obey Jesus? Do, do I give my obedience to him, even when it's hard, even when it's something that I don't wanna do? Do I trust Jesus, believing that what he has for me is good? 